hi everyone. I'm a vicar. I've been ordained for six years now, um, and I'm going to share the story of our church plant that we launched, and then the network that we started, and um, some of the principles. Essentially, that title, "Leading Congregations: The Good, the Bad, the Ugly." Let me just introduce myself. Uh, me and my wife met when we were in our late teens, and we both had a calling to a state ministry. Very similar time. Um, I became a Christian at 17, and two weeks after that, I heard a really clear calling to counsel state ministry. I, just, I heard the Lord literally say, um, you're going to live and work on council estates until I tell you to do something else. And that was 20 years ago. And so that's what me and my wife have been doing for the last 20 years in different places. We spent most of our 20s on a council estate in Manchester doing something called Eden that some of you might have heard of. Um, and then in the midst of that time, I was called to ordination, ordained training, ordained ministry and went off to college and then came back to Bolton. So that's where we are now. We're on an estate called Oldham's Estate in Bolton. And then we've been here six years and we planted a church here from a parish church. Um, and then the bishops approached us and said, we want you, me and a friend of mine, John, to create a network of church plants that have a particular focus on communities that are called deprived, I guess. And so we've set up this thing called Antioch, where we um, we got some money from the church commissioners to employ some folks. And we're hoping to plant church all across the diocese in on council estates and in um, sort of areas of high deprivation, I guess. And so that's what we're doing. But it, I, I want to maybe take us back six years to when we first arrived in Bolton. And, and if you've been in ministry for a little while or you've been a Christian for a little while, you, you sort of you develop a little a bag, don't you, of, of methods and things that have worked in the past, things that you'd think these are tried and tested things. I know these are going to work. And we arrived in Bolton with that bag and we were ready almost to get on with it. We were ready just to get going and open the bag and start some bits and pieces. But we really sensed the Lord stop us from day one and say, zip the bag up, put it in the closet. I want to teach you how to pray. And I guess this is my first little sidestep for us to reflect. A really simple question, but a pretty, pretty important, in fact, vital, I'd suggest. How is your prayer life? And um, so often we want to do great things for, for God. We want to you want to do great activities for Jesus, but we put the cart before the horse and, and everything we do has to be rooted in prayer. And for us, Jesus had to drag us to our knees. Um, and, and in some ways, to our surprise, our, our congregation was born out of that place of prayer. There's that, there's that verse in it that, we, that many of us will know in Thessalonians 5.17. The literate Paul says, pray without ceasing. And that word there means unceasingly, continuously, steadily even. Um, and sometimes, we, I don't know about you, but I hear that verse and think, oh my goodness, what does that, what does that mean? How on earth can you pray unceasingly? And, but for us, we, in those early days of Oldham's Church, we, we heard the whisper of the Holy Spirit saying, come, come and learn how to pray. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus, they say, Lord, teach us, teach us how to pray. And, and, and so we, we had to be taught how to pray. And for me, prayer is lots of things, but particularly I think it's two things. It's intimacy with the Lord, with Jesus but also obedience to Jesus. If you, if you look through the Gospels, particularly John 15, there's a lot. Jesus is speaking there about his relationship with the Father. And he says in 
John 15, 9, as the Father's loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And for us, we, we learned that Jesus is going to tell us to do things for him. My love for him is going to be tested in my obedience to him. Um, it's almost like Jesus is daring us to submit to him, to be obedient to him. Like he's saying to us, I know what you look like if you just surrender to me. And I guess prayer is the articulation of that reliance on Jesus. And so, so we arrived in Bolton six years ago, loads of activities, but Jesus said, just stop, just pray. And so for 18 months, that's all we did. We, we just prayed. We gathered a little, little core group of us that were part of the estate. And we learned how to pray together. Um, and in some ways, I think that sort of prayer is, it takes practice, doesn't it? it for want of a better phrase, maybe, prayer is an acquired taste. It's sort of, it, you, it's never easy. It, well, it, sometimes it can be easy and it can seem to work a little smooth, more smoothly than other times. But it's a discipline and, it, and, and it's, it's, for me, it's got to be there in my diary. Um, and so... Prayer then becomes the engine room for everything we do. Um, and so Oldham's Church started in prayer. Um, we, um, we met every week and then slowly but surely we started to sense the Lord um, tell us to do things, just start to start to do things. This picture is us in a, in a house on the estate. It's the biggest house on the estate. You'll notice there's an Arga in the corner. That's not the normal thing you'd see on a council estate. So, but this is the biggest house that we have in our church. So we started to meet in homes, have food, and learn how to pray as a, as a small group. Um, so we start to do things out of this place of prayer. But again, just to remind, just to come back to that sidestep, what is your prayer life like? Um, do you carve out time um, in your diary? for prayer interestingly more recently i've been challenged by the the early church and the you know the, the early church particularly in the first 500 years and the, and the rhythms of prayer for us anglicans i guess the, the offices um that you know for some monastic communities they stop and pray seven to nine times a day and that's a real challenge to me um but if i look at my diary and there's no there's not prayer in there in the week then there's something wrong um and if if I don't think that, the Lord will quickly tell me that in my experience. So how's your prayer life? First side step. So we, we started to start to do some things, just some just some small things. Uh, Valentine's Day, we start to do these love gift bags. You see on the table there, I was preparing them and just going out to the estate and, and serving. And, and then we do other things. <laughs> these are our, this is our fag break in our prayer meeting. We'll have, we have many fag breaks in our church. Um, many many fag breaks and um, not so many coffee breaks well we have a few instant coffee breaks but we have more fag breaks and then we started to do things and then and then we started to sense that the lord was saying now i want you to do a sunday worship service i want you to start um i want you to start to do a sunday worship service so we um we found this community center up at the top of the estate um and we started to learn what the Lord would have us be. And the, for us, those were three things, three things, really simple things. Community, being the family of Jesus, number one. Number two, discipleship, learning how to follow him in every area of our lives um, together as a community. And then number three, mission, that we'll always be looking to share in Jesus in our life and our words and our deeds and 
with those around us. Really three simple things, but that's what we felt the Lord was saying, do anything and you do those three things. Um, and so we started um, a Sunday service and it was, it was a with a beautiful service um, five years ago in January, it'd be, uh, there was a bunch of people there, it was lovely. But then for about a year, it was really hard graft. Like there'd be, there'd be some Sundays where it'd be m me and Amy and our kids and then another family and possibly a dog if we were lucky. And it, it was a graft. Like there'd be weeks we'd, we'd be like, Lord, why are we doing this? This just feels, feels like we could be using our time more effectively. And then thankfully because we had that foundation of prayer we knew that this is what the lord had asked us to do so we could say no but this is what the lord's asked us to do and um, interestingly a lady called jenny was there the lady in red on this picture at the back there next to me and um, she came to our first service and then we didn't see her again for about a year and um, and then after a year things started to change people just started to turn up um I'm just going to go back to this picture. There's a guy in the bottom corner there called Sean. And in that picture, he is in active heroin abuse. He's he's spending around 60 to 80 pounds a day on heroin. And I used to live near Sean, live, used to live opposite him. And I remember seeing Sean quite regularly and thinking, Lord, how would someone like Sean become part of the church, be, become a Christian? Like, that just feels beyond me, Lord. And again, that same question that I really sensed from the Lord was pray, come back to prayer, come back to prayer. So um, uh, this is where we meet up, actually. This is just outside the centre. We meet up. This is one of our Christmas activities that we do. We get some live animals and, and do a Christmas sort of nativity through the estate. And this is our, this is our Sunday worship. Um, and after about a year of doing Sunday worship, people just started to, people started to turn up. And in fact, Sean turned up about a year and a month in to us gathering on a Sunday. And I remember literally running up to Sean and grabbing him and saying, what on earth are you doing here? And that was the welcome committee. I thought, I sort of thought, well, gosh, if that's the welcome, we need to sort this out. And, I, and he just said, I have no idea. My kids have heard about it and they've dragged me up here. Um, and then the week after, guess what? He turns back up again. And the week after that, and the week after that. And then about two months into being with us on a Sunday, he says, I've stopped using heroin and I've no idea why. And I said, I think I'd probably say the same. I have no idea why you've, you've stopped using heroin, but here's what I do know. Um, there's a God and he's called Jesus and he, and he wants something different for your life, Sean. And, um, and he says, well, I need, to, I need to learn about who this Jesus fella is then. And so simultaneously to him coming back, Jenny started to come to church, um, that lady with red hair. And she, she openly admitted as she came back that she was an alcoholic. She'd been drinking dependently on alcohol for 16 years. And, and then she came and stayed with me and my wife just for a weekend when she was at rock bottom. She'd had the police at her house. And, and then we, we said, look, Jenny, Jesus wants a different life for you. He, his hand is extended and he wants you to take it and see what he will do with your life if you only follow him and she said she went to work the, the Monday after that weekend and she went into the toilet often the most profound things happen in prayer on the toilet in my experience and she says she said that she uttered her first prayer and she said God if you're real 
take away this addiction because it's destroying me. And she says, whilst she was on the toilet in a cafe where she worked, she just sensed this lifting. And since then, she's not touched alcohol. That was that was about five years ago, four and a half years ago for Jen. Um, and so we said, goodness me, we've got two people at least here, Jenny and Sean, who need to learn what being a Christian is. So we did an emergency alpha course. And basically, I tell those stories because they, they became the blueprint in some ways of what Oldham's church was about. We had, at last count, um, we about seven, 65 to 70 percent of our church were new Christians or soon to be Christians, atheists sort of wandering and looking in. And then and there were many other Sean's and Jenny's and people who'd who'd not experienced Jesus, basically, in their lives, who started to look at the Sean's and the Jenny's and say, there's some evidence there that this Jesus fellow is real. And that's the evidence I see in front of me. And so I guess now we're, we're at the stage where there's about a core community of about 70 of us um, meeting. Lockdown was was a horrible time for us because for us, we, we value being in the same room as each other. And so it was really difficult. But now we've started to meet in our parish church again, which has been lovely this last two months. Um, and uh, yeah, Oldham's Church is fabulous. We're now at the stage where we're about to plant out of Oldham's Church. We're sending me and my wife are leading a team and we're taking a team out of Oldham's Church onto a neighbouring council estate. And, um, and, and Oldham's Church will continue with some leaders that we've, that we've raised up. Um, uh, there's Jamie being baptised with no top on. We have lots of half-naked baptisms in our church, men, men only, so just to confirm that. Um, and uh, yeah, these are some of the guys that we've um, we've seen. This is a guy called Jamie, who's, who was Sean's best friend. And um, Jamie and Sean used to smoke weed together. And when Sean started to first experience Jamie, uh, Jesus, he... Um, Jamie would go to Sean's and say, this is just all a, this is all a trick. It's all either a cult or it's just a bit of a joke. Cause you know, I've, I've watched Sean's 20 year heroin addiction. And, and so I know that this is just another little fad. And then Sean just began to see Sean, um, Jamie began to see J Sean's life transformed. And, and so Jamie gave his life to Jesus. And um, this is him doing his first preach last year. And then, um, and so, Another sidestep, leaders, I believe, should be trained for hardship. Now, you might be thinking, goodness, that's, that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a curveball for all the joy stories that we just heard, you know, people getting their lives transformed. Um, my experience of 20 years following Jesus into some pretty tough places um, is that leadership is often about learning how to face hardship face on. And then you don't have to look far in the Bible, do you, to realise that it's something that God wants to communicate to us. Whether you look at some of what Jesus taught around the world, hating us sometimes, life being full of trouble, but taking heart. Um, you know, the, the, the letters in the New Testament, full of, full of hardship. Uh, Paul talking about wanting to know Christ, but also know his suffering as well. And that just not making sense for us Westerners often as thinking what on earth does that mean to, to to take into our bodies the suffering of Christ what on earth is that um but I think there's something really important here about hardship and to to, to continue that story I want to tell you about a guy called Sam 
he was <laughs> Sam was on our estate. He was a heroin user, and um, he was a militant atheist. And uh, listen to this: he was a registered anarchist. That's true. Anarchists have committee meetings. He would tell me like he he talked, show me the minutes from their committee meetings. That's true. For me, it was ironic that anarchists would have committee meetings, but he was a registered anarchist and he reached out to us at one of the lowest points in his life. He, he'd, his friends had OD'd on heroin and, and nearly died and went into a coma and he just, he was at rock bottom, Sam. And I remember sitting in his room in this little flat on our estate, just saying, Sam, you're an atheist, you're an anarchist. You're a little bit scary to be honest, but I believe Jesus is real and he's got something different for you, mate. And he just looked at me and he had tears pouring down his face and he said, I shouldn't believe it, but I, something in me tells me what you're saying is true, Ben. And um, slowly but surely, Sam, Sam would say his eyes were open to the truth of Jesus and Christianity. And he gave his life to Jesus and um, he, um, his atheism didn't seem so strong. And I remember he, he was baptised in September two years ago and his... His mum and dad were there who were both militant atheists and he he, he came out of the water and, and he got himself dry and he ran to his dad and grabbed him and said dad i'm born again you, sh you should try it um but sam still struggled with his heroin use he, he he had pretty horrendous mental health as well and but he became part of our family he was one of us he was our brother and and he would say what i've experienced here the love i've experienced in this church is nothing like the world of ever i've experienced in the world and you know those verses where john where jesus talks in john 17 you know um you know that they would love each other and by that they would praise the father in heaven and that was sam's experience but then in october i got a phone call from sam's mom saying he's been found dead in his flat from an overdose and i remember that being the most horrific two weeks of our church's life um sam had become one of our family he'd um He'd met Jesus and and for nine months, we'd have the privilege of being friends with him and, and him being part of our lives. And I remember driving up to Winter Hill, if you know, Bolton, up the top there with the red pile and the red mast and just shouting at God saying, what was what was the point in all that? But it reminded me that um, the life can sometimes be hard and following Jesus is often learning how to walk into hardship. And then um, so we um and interestingly we still got connections with sam's mom and dad and and i remember doing the funeral a few weeks later and just um i was just exhausted but i sensed the peace and the presence of god carry me in that time so the second side step there is do you recognize that in your own life and do you feel like you you are trained for hardship and um, and then the third um side step is leading congregations is building the we've got to be committed to building the family of jesus and um, we've got about 10 minutes left and then I'm, so i'm going to just talk to this a little bit and i've got some things that i've learned in raising leaders raising local leaders just some of the le lessons that we've learned and i'll just go through them really quickly but I, making disciples is graft is hard work in my experience that helping lead this family of jesus is at times painful um, for us, we've built a family um, out of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. You know, it's not just people with substance misuse. It's a whole mix of people. It's a beautiful family. And the problem is some of those guys before they met Jesus used to hate each other. Um, 
for some of them, they used to um, they used to be in relationship with each other in, in deeper levels than maybe we ought to talk about. That that, that some of these guys used to literally um, kill each other, and now they find themselves in the family of Jesus. So we had to do a lot of teaching around what it means to be the Christian family, what it means to deal with conflict the Jesus way, Matthew 18, face to face. If you can't do it face to face, bring a witness in. If that doesn't work, bring a church leader around you. And there was two, two to three years where it was quite intense pastorally, people falling out here and there. We used to go to conferences and stuff like New Wine in the summer or um, different things. And, and there was one New Wine where every, literally 80% of the camp in our church just just had arguments and got to the end of it and said our church is falling apart we need to i'm not coming back to church but we we had to learn what jesus meant when he said you don't have the option of walking out on each other you need to if you are followers of me you need to learn how to love each other and that means loving the people that you maybe don't like that you used to fight with that bring up that irritation in you um and so that was a journey for us. And, and I was reminded, I was reading last week of some of that early church, some of the, the post-biblical early church writings. As the, there's a few writings that were around, like the Apology of Tertullian and a few other guys, that, where outsiders would describe what the church was like. And just let me just read these out to you because they're very challenging. And this one was written in AD 197. And it just says, see how they love one another see how they're ready even to die for one another there was this profound um experience of the people outside the church who looked and said goodness me look at how they love each other and i wonder if that could be said of our congregations um it's it's a manifesto for what our church should look like the family of jesus so three things really for me um three sidesteps for you guys how is your prayer life how are you being trained for hardship in leadership and how you build in that family of Jesus where you, where you walk that hard path of teaching and learning how to love each other and be the family of Jesus. Um, just a couple minutes left and I've got some principles, um, things that we've learned when, in terms of raising local leaders and growing them. Um, this is a picture of some of our fellas um, as they've come through the ranks and as they've learned how to follow Jesus. You'll see that Sean's there at the front in orange and um, Sean's now been clean for three years of heroin um, and he's a beautiful man and he's led many other people to Jesus. But I guess the question when we think about leadership is what is leadership and what does growing local leaders mean? I think for me leadership is, is lots of things but it's certainly two things. It's, leadership is about taking responsibility and character taking responsibility and character but it's interesting it because you think about the first disciples and the first apostles they were a ragtag bunch of people weren't they and, and Andy Jolly who's wrote an amazing book called um, one of those grow booklets called growing leaders from the diverse cultures he says how many of the apostles will be accepted into church leadership today that's an interesting question isn't it? there was a ragtag bunch of people there weren't there but God seemed to use them and bring about profound change um, and so a few principles that we've learned in Oldham's church as we've strived to raise local leaders as we try to commit to that to that difficult task of of saying Lord we don't want our churches just to look 
be led by people that look like me from middle-class backgrounds. We want our churches to be led by a whole mix of people who've, who've given their lives to Jesus, who, who commit to follow him, but they don't necessarily look like me. So the first thing um, I'd say is, and I'm going to whiz through these, apologies for that, but just maybe it'll prompt some stuff in you and you can ask questions or comment. Culture of discipleship. Um, I think there needs to be a culture of discipleship in our churches that um, what it means to be at the white hot centre of our church is a radical follower of Jesus, learning how to work it out in daily life. And I don't mean by that perfection or holiness, but, you know, perfect holiness. What I'm talking about is every day waking up and facing Jesus, not necessarily being perfect. And that's what we want at the centre of our church. Um, to watch for leaders, they will show themselves. Some people say they're leaders, but they're not. Some people say they're not leaders, but they are. So for, for me, what that means is in, in times of crisis and drama, watch for the people who will take responsibility and lead. Um, there's there's a, a great quote that Brené Brown quotes in one of her recent books, Daring Greatly, and it's President Theodore Roosevelt. And he says, he says this, it's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man or woman stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the person who is in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he or she fails, at least fails while daring greatly. That some people love to criticise from the stands, don't they? But actually don't listen to them. We should listen to those in the arena with us, stood with us, alongside us, who, who say in the times of crisis, I'm going to take responsibility and act well in this situation. Um, next thing, invest in a small group. The Jesus way invested in small groups, didn't he? In the, in the three, in the 12, in the 72. And the problem is when you do that, you might be getting accused of having favourites. Just leave that one with you. Um, create a culture of accountability that and what I don't mean by this is heavy shepherding what I mean by this is let's have a culture where we bravely bring our darkness and sin into the light to support one another and um, often people ask me you know well you know surely there's people all around you with all sorts of baggage and darkness and especially on estates and I say oh yeah definitely but all of us have it all of us have sin in our lives. It's just maybe middle-class folks like me know how to hide it a little better. Maybe it's for middle-class folks like me, and I, I just have an extra two or three beers when I shouldn't. For someone like Sean, he maybe rolls up a joint and smokes it when he shouldn't. What I want is in our churches for people to be able to bring their sin into the light and we hold each other to account. We say, brother, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on what Jesus has for you. I'm going to, I'm going to call you out when I need to call you out, but I'm not giving up on you. Keep bringing it into the light and um, create healthy, a culture of healthy conflict. That's what I've talked to creating them, um, teaching people how to do conflict well. And that takes time. I'd suggest uh, risk. People will fall and fail badly, but we don't give up on people. I think particularly of Jesus's relationship with Peter here, where Peter literally says screw you Jesus and denies him and then Jesus acknowledges the sin but recommissions him um, a culture of amateurism and participation over excellence I would suggest that often you know excellence is a great thing like we want to do things well don't we but not in spite of people feeling able to do things 
I remember once when Sean led his first church service and um, he'd not really done much public speaking before, but I remember there was a few other folks in the church when he led it and just new believers. And they said, if, if Sean could have a go at this, maybe I could have a go at doing something for Jesus. Create a culture of amateurism, culture of ownership. People got to feel like this is their, their congregation. Um, there's a personal cost, I think, in leadership generally, but in, in, in raising leadership, there's your own insecurities that are raised. I think external supervision for yourself if, if is, is just is vital, is essential. Um, discern projection and cynicism when you're doing this, um, but also welcome constructive criticism. And then I think the final one, I think you've probably got already, but church is family. The church has to be family. Um, and I don't mean the, the blueprint family that we're taught by Western culture, but just a family that loves each other in the spite of everything. So that is me. Apologies for whizzing through that, but I guess I wanted to just blast some stuff at you. And then uh, you maybe, some stuff would land with you more than others, and then you can just come back. And so let's open it up to some questions, some comments, some thoughts. Maybe I'll hand over to Dan and Jack to sort of navigate this and then we'll then, we'll crack on. Okay, and um, little light-hearted question to start off with. Um, <laughs> Why are you called Oldham's Church if you're in Bolton? Very, very confusing for anyone who doesn't live in Bolton. So That's it's just wrong geogra geographically <laughs> in error there. Sorry to point that yeah, out in public. It, and it means nothing to you guys, I imagine. But for it's the estate is called Oldham's Estate. So um, that's, that's yeah. If you live in Bolton, it makes sense. Right. Oldham's it's, one estate. Those, one of, it's one of those places, isn't it, Bolton, where if you live there, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> one question had come up in the chat ben is uh, if you could tell us more about your network the antioch network yeah, yeah of course so there's, we've got a website so feel free to go and have a look antiochnetwork.org um and what we're what we're passionate about is small replicating congregations basically in deprived communities um, and mostly lay-led congregations so the vicars in our network are often sort of supervising or looking after a, a bunch of churches together. And then we started about 18 months to two years ago. We've got a few members of staff now, a few of those are church planters. And the idea is that um, we plant in areas of deprivation and we don't get any bigger than 50 to 60 people. At that point, we should be looking at replanting on a neighboring council estate or in a neighboring area. Um, and yeah, that's that's what Antioch's about. We've got different Anglican churches involved. So we have staff members who plant churches, but we've also got volunteers who are passionate about doing some sort of church plant in their community, but don't quite maybe have the infrastructure around them. So um, we work with Anglican churches who want to partner with, you, with us. So very similar to the Joshua Centre, I guess, in that regard. Um, and we provide that infrastructure around those those individuals who are passionate about this this stuff yeah thank you um ben you, you talked about you said leaders will show themselves um what did you talk a bit more about that like any examples of that how do you mean you said something about taking responsibility but what like what hmm. so <laughs> i'll give you a negative and a positive so we had one lady who who said 
would say that she's she's a leader and actually in some ways would act like it. And so we, I wondered at one point whether I it would be right for her to become part of the leadership team in the church. Um, and then another guy is Sean, basically. Sean would resist being called a leader. In fact, when I first spoke to him about leadership, he said, I hate that word. And, that, and, and part of that was Sean's narrative of anti-authority, anti-leadership. He'd spent most of his life in care. He'd spent a lot of time at the wrong end of leadership, I guess. The, um, the, the, the wrong side of what he perceived to be leadership. So there's two people. And we went into a bit of a drama time with the pastoral stuff kicking off. And, um, and interestingly, the lady basically just shrunk back. And, and in, in relationships where there'd be some drama around her, just wouldn't be willing to step up. And I'd say to her, let's, let's, let's crack on with this. Let's work out a positive way forward, for example. And she'd just shrink back, basically, and then, and then maybe start being quite negative and stuff. So it was interesting. It was helpful for me to see that. Um, and then the, for Sean, he basically, in the background, go around um, helping people to get on effectively. He'd, 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 um, he'd say, he'd basically just meet up with people and say, look, this, is, this isn't quite right. We need, to, we need to deal with this. Or he'd, he'd just get on with doing stuff, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so we've, uh, it's often just the people who will get on with just get on with it and 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 get on with doing the hard things actually often making the hard decisions and um yeah there's two examples thank you um in terms of what you were saying about the emergency alpha course which you were saying had sort of been set up to uh, sort yeah. of help a couple of people one who'd come from sort of a background of alcoholism and one who'd been um you know an addict to heroin um, just a question really is to sort of what that looked like and uh, you know why you chose to do alpha and whether you sort of explored other uh, sort of yeah. follow-up courses yeah yeah we've tried all sorts and and uh, and we continue to do all sorts basically we just want to try anything that will help people learn who Jesus is and and what being a Christian is all about and we, we we like alpha because it it's it's a that I guess what I like about Alpha is that space of a learning community where we're all together in the room. Now, the way we do it, we've never done the sort of big event thing. We've always done Alpha in homes. We've done it with a cup of tea and a biscuit. And then we watch the video and then we just have a, a big chat afterwards. And we um, and that for me is where the gold is. And interestingly, we, you know, there's, there's moments in Alpha where it's very middle class. And, you know, when you've got Nikki and, and, and Pippa making asparagus over the stove, it's like, what is what's what's what does that even mean like for some folks for some of our guys but it's just funny and fascinating all of our guys love them like the, i think there's something about their heart maybe that they're just like yeah they're very different to us but they they seem like kind people and whatever interestingly there's a bit of an urban myth i think around alpha in on the states there's a bit of a an idea that alpha will never work and it's like well yeah there is, there's been places in my life where it's not worked on estates but that doesn't mean it won't work on this estate while we try it and, but again at, at the same time alpha's not the be all and end all isn't it jesus is the be all and end all we want people to learn who jesus is so let's just try anything so we try all sorts of things but that key principle of learning together learning community and um, doing it in the front room as well is really important the event stuff didn't really work for us people don't really 
come and have a meal around the table, generally where we are, but they'll sit in front of the telly with a brew. I'm thinking about the culture looking sort of very different there. Uh, are there any examples of uh, Oldham's church sort of adapting or celebrating the culture or even sort of challenging the culture? But what I found on estates is loyalty and family is often much more um, much much more ingrained in a positive way than, than where I grew up on more suburban estates where everyone literally shuts the door at 5pm and you don't see them again. That's a generalisation, obviously, but um, that actually the loyalty thing, people have got each other's back. They might be killing them the day before, but the next day they've, they've got each other's back, you know, um, and there's still some of that I know in, in our estates. And so we've let that teach us, actually. Uh, often people... Um, in our church have taught us how to be family much more than than the other way around and um, I think people on the states in my experience again generalization but they don't they don't fanny around there's, there's no grayness if there's a problem they'll just declare it and I think for me I've had to learn to do that a lot it's like let's just be black and white with some things if there's something wrong here let's just call it out let's not be overly nice about it because often nice just confuses people talking about a, a difficult situation and um, there's probably loads of other things but yeah there's a couple that's really helpful thank you um, um and in terms of conversations around money and giving and tithing yeah. how have you approached those in your context yeah really important one so one of our things in our network is we want our congregations to become self-sufficient and um that means you've got to have those conversations. You've got to have an idea of, give, you've got to teach this idea of giving. And we basically, we taught it for about six months from the front and got nowhere. Now, I would suggest that actually what we were doing there was building a foundation and people learning afresh what this idea of tithing was and, and giving. And But I think that you've got to go a step back really in this, this idea of ownership. People have got to feel like this is their church. So within that, we say, this church has got some financial needs we need to hear some of them and just literally outlay them but it only really happened people start to give when out when we went one-to-one -one, where i just went to people and said look this is a deal are you in a place where you can give and there's no easy way of having that conversation is there i think it's basically grasp the net will have the conversation one-to-one -one. And, and i'd suggest maybe based on the fact that we've done six months of sort of talking about this so that was in the back of people's minds but that's not enough just to do that we got nowhere with that in in some ways there's no people that gave on the back of that but now we've after having one-to-one -one conversations we've built up you know relatively healthy monthly giving now um but it's only on the back of one-to-ones you know just sitting down with people and saying where are you at with this so what would you have said to people in those conversations just said we've been talking about this for a while um are you giving or not <laughs> i think it's because this is our church it feels like it's their church and it's my church so it's not sort of like they're giving to some alien thing it's like and and often it'd be like oh yeah we just haven't got around to it I'm really sorry and bang it's in but that that conversation was the stimulus to sort of get it moving um yeah and, and it's interesting one one time i did that they were like well ben how much do you want me to give and i'm like that's not i'm not interested in how much you want me to give that's between you and god like give generously but you know give with a cheerful heart whatever you feel like you can you can give there's some principles i've taught you but right right so would this be enough 
why are you telling me this? I don't want to know how much you're giving. Just, just get on with it. But it's just a new, it's a new idea for a lot of people, particularly people new to church. Um, yeah. What do you think would have happened, uh, Ben, if if you hadn't have had those one-to-one conversations? What, where would you be at now? We wouldn't have many givers. We'd maybe have, we had about three givers basically, and that's where we'd still be. Yeah. And like, we, we would go, it was getting a bit boring, to be honest. Like I'd, we'd do like sermons on it and then I'd do a notice. Hey, again, guys, remember, here's some of the code for the bank details. Just come and talk to me afterwards. Nothing. <laughs> that was it. Why is that? In your opinion? I mean, you know, what do you think? Why do you think that was? Uh, I don't know, actually. I think, I think some people would probably getting ready to do it but just needed that extra shove as it were and that one-to-one conversation maybe was what that extra shove was and so the people on your so you you said it's not middle class it's not kind of like um people aren't flush for money so just just to kind of like um help anyone who's thinking who's discounting them from their own context from doing that because you're you're really rich in in bolton Um, (laughs) what's the kind of what, what are we talking about in terms of average income the people you're talking to what what are they what are they earning that they're able to you know what Um, most of our most of our new converts um i'd say 70 to 80 percent of our new converts aren't in work so they're either on benefits or they're carers or so yeah they're not particularly flush relatively not particularly flush with money um but then we've got a mix of people as well it's you know there's people who aren't just aren't from that sort of background and um so yeah, a real mix. Yeah, so it's, that's interesting because you're not dis, you're not discounting them, even though you're saying we're not after your money primarily, but we're not discounting you because we haven't got enough because you haven't got loads. Yeah. Like we're trying to you're trying to find a radical middle there, aren't you? That's like, right. It's and, not about the money. You don't want to know the quantity, but you're not saying well just because you haven't got very much that therefore you're somehow exactly. the hook. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we get we had a testimony of a lady who herself was on benefits, came to Christ, and she started to give and um, out of that income that she had yeah amazing are there other sorts of conversations that you found you need to have in that one-to-one context rather than um Uh, yeah uh, pretty much all conflict needs to happen one-to-one it's interesting because often when we'd be in those tense times you'd almost feel like people would want a big barney and i to like i almost to be the sort of referee from the front like let's just have a big fight and it's like, that's not the way Jesus teaches us. We do it in private initially because, because um, just that's the way it should be done. And, and, and so, yeah, I've had lots of one-to-one meetings, oh, man, pretty intense meetings, like mediation meetings. I've been sat in rooms where two families are literally at each other. who come to Christ, who've seen beautiful transformation, but are literally at each other. So I've had to sit in the midst of that. And yeah, so all of that stuff happens um, privately as it were and um, Ben for that just for people like me whose whose memory of those verses in Matthew about conflict may be a little bit not what it should be and um, just give us a little you know I'm not saying I can't remember the reference or anything but I can't, I can't so just remind us what's what's that kind of you're saying Jesus said about conflict you know just just give us a kind of like a little summary of that what was yeah. the let's see if I can find it again did I even have the right reference? This is the this is the question. Um, it it's where Jesus says, uh, 
it's linked into where he teaches on um you know he says if you feel you've got your brother's got or sister's got something against you before yeah, yeah. the altar put it down go and be reconciled and then and then following on from that he talks about come on someone else maybe help me out there's um he talks about the three I found it. it's matthew 18 yeah first so if your brother or sister sins go and point out their faults just between the two of you if they listen to you you have won them over if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Yeah. So Ben, hang on. You're not telling me you actually do that, are you? Yeah. Oh we my try. goodness. We try. And it's hard. You're like Jesus. <laughs> no. And trust me, there's been, there's been, and look, I'm not saying this happens every week. It's just in those crisis moments where yeah. families are warring with each other. And, and there's just been a few moments where I've had to say, now we're going into this. We're going hard now. And this is what we do. I think generally what we teach is we just try, whatever background you come from, you've been taught by the world to do conflict wrong, in my opinion. Basically, if you're from a middle class background, for me, my family was a very much hide it under the carpet. It'll fizzle out somewhere. Uh, my, my wife's family is from a, a family of just argue over the table just like wore it out and in some ways that's a little better than hiding under the carpet and then many of our estates guys are like literally threaten violence and then maybe the next day it'll be all right but there's all sorts of just like unhealthy ways of dealing with conflict in all of us and so we just and if it's um if it's any consolation as a bishop i use that verse more than any <laughs> Whenever clergy would come to me about such, I would inevitably say to them, you know, Matthew 18, you must go yourself and face them with this. Yeah. And it, it, time and time again, it was, it's some of the most valuable piece of, of advice that Jesus ever gave. Mm. And it takes real guts, doesn't it, to face the person mm. who you, you consider to be your enemy. or. For but often middle class people or others want you to do it for them. And you've got to resist it. You've mm -hmm. got to resist it and make sure that they do it. That's so right. Yeah. It's called, it's called triangulation. That isn't it? There's the official. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'd have many people ring me and say, guess what she's done. Can you yeah. go and deal with it? And, I, and I'd be like, not interested. I'll pray for you. But you, you know what we need to do. You need to go and speak to them. And it took about two years for the general like, people to understand what that was about to the point where I'd no longer really get them phone calls anymore. I'd get people saying, this is this has happened. This person said this about me. I'm going to go and speak to them. Will you just be praying for me today as I go and do that? Because I'm really scared. I'm anxious. And that's the point. It's a nettle. It really is painful, isn't it, this stuff? It's not easy for us to do, any of us. But um, I don't think there's any other way. Because then there's a danger if you steps, skip the steps as well, that you sort of triangulate it, you draw other people and yeah. sort of make it more complex than it. Mm. Uh, might otherwise need uh, to be yeah one other question so you mentioned uh, how you would sort of reach sort of 50 to 60 people max uh, before you explore planting a new church uh, yeah. why 50 to 60 so we reckon around that number you start to become a different field church that, that, that there's nothing wrong with that field but it's just you become of a size where some of those deep relationships can't operate in the same way as one unit if that makes sense 
Um, so we just recognize that as a number. It's actually between 50 and 70 around. Um, and so we just want to keep things small. We want to keep things um, in that bracket because we've just found that you can, your discipleship, your mission, your being Jesus' family, it's just sharper when it's smaller, basically. It's just, uh, it, it seems to work better for us with those numbers. Um, and also there's a there's some church theory that um not so much around numbers but around timing wise that once you get to between five to seven years you need to institute some sort of change because that's when the point at which you can stagnate they reckon there's some church sort of statisticians people have done some research and so at that point you need to institute change whether it's we go to the next level now we go a bit bigger and so we change our infrastructure to get bigger or we literally slice off a group of people and chuck them out to the next estate, which is what we do. You said, um, Ben, that you'd raised up other people to take over Oldham's. So yeah. um, just in a couple of minutes, how, how did you do that? Uh, over time. And some of the things I talked about before, it took a long, it's taken a long time. And How, how long do you reckon? What are we talking? <sighs> Three months? No way. What? You slow coach three to five years right okay of of daily graft discipleship walking with people um yeah. and and some of those guys aren't ready to take senior leadership of the church yet you know i've got basically i've got a curate who's gonna um act as a senior leadership and he'll sort of hold i guess in front of him loads of ministry leaders and those are those guys and so sean is now a ministry leader and um, other other people are doing stuff Jamie's our sort of raving evangelist. He just goes around and grips people up for Jesus on the estate. But there's all the different like ministry leaders, formal and informal. And sort of there'll be a few of them who maybe in three to four years, I could see possibly taking on a church, um, possibly. So you've gotten through stages of, so you've gotten from the new disciples to maturing as disciples to taking responsibility to eventually they can, yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not all or nothing, is it? No, no, not at all. And you, you know, read in the New Testament, don't you, where Paul talks about not giving a new believer, um, you know, too much responsibility. And yet, I always, I wonder, did he try it? Like, did he, like, did he give some new believers responsibility? And it fell on it, it sort of, it fell on its face, as it were. And I think we've probably all got experience of that, maybe. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I guess I just had one final question, which was you were talking about going and planting at this new church from Oldham's. Mm. So you've talked about principles of leadership. I was wondering what you'll specifically sort of take as lessons as you go into that new new context. Yeah, yeah. So we've um, partnership is a key thing. So we're, what's different, I think, in some ways, was we partnered with the parish church to plant Oldham's church, but there's more partnership that we can have isn't there so we're working with a couple of other parish churches up on the new estate we're also working with um a pentecostal church up there and another church as well a methodist church to sort of build a core team for that estate so what bigger wider partnership um to be part of our core teams um just keep coming back to that prayer thing um that if that's not there then i'm not interested basically and um I try and have a prayer morning at least every week. Um, and I say that to all the people who work for us in Antioch. I say, I'm checking your diaries. And if 
that's the first thing I'm looking at. If that's not there, then I'm I'm calling you out on it. And um, and uh, I guess laughing. Do you know what? We we're too serious sometimes as Christians, aren't we? And I think we um me and my wife six months ago looked at each other and said we haven't laughed much recently. That's that's not right. So it should it should be fun. This stuff like th there should be enough joys to make us laugh. Like. I talked about hardship, didn't I? But if it's just all hardship, then this is not going to be great, is it? But, you know, looking for those moments of laughter and joy and having that in our churches, you know, doing fun things. So on Sunday, we're all going to the Illuminations. And for some reason, we've developed this culture of dressing up as Santa as we go. I have no idea why. So on Sunday evening, there'll be about 70 people in, in their own cars, isolated and everything, you know. But we'll be dressed as Santa for some reason. And it's a right laugh. And it makes no sense, but this idea of just laughing together is really important. Brilliant. Ben, um, really appreciate your time, really appreciate your thoughts. Just wondered if you could if you could pray for us. Lots of us are doing little kind of congregations, average is about 20, biggest we kind of got to is about 40. If you could just pray for us, that'd be that'd be really great. Yeah, of course. Pray. Thanks, Father, thank you that you call us into this adventure called Christianity that is painful at times, is um, is risky and, and sometimes we feel like we're in a mist, we don't know quite what we're doing but we know who's called us and, and so Lord would you help us know afresh today that calling, the one who calls us, the one who, who takes his hand and, and, and reaches out to us and says come and follow me, come and follow me. Lord, uh, thank you for Joshua Centre and Liverpool Diocese and all the different amazing things that are going on there. And I pray you'd refresh those guys, Lord Jesus. Um, would you speak to them afresh about what you've asked them to do? Would you give them hope where they might need it? Help them to laugh and then um, continue to train them for the calling that you put on their lives. Lord Jesus, pray in your name. Amen. Amen.